in case you can't tell, I'm vamping to see if they still are in that uh, position. They are. They're a half game ahead of the Padres. Excellent. Greetings and welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is May 18th, 2021. I am not your usual host, Sarah Ziegler. She is out on vacation. I am Neil Payne. I'm a senior sports writer for 538, and I am joined by the other usual member of our panel, Jeff Foster from Los Angeles, 538 contributor. How you doing, Jeff? How you doing, not Sarah Ziegler? <laughs> I know. I'm you, you can call me not Sarah all episode. Me, um, other regular, is doing pretty well over here. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we've long dreamed of just the two of us being able to talk hockey and various other sports that are uh, important only to us, unencumbered uh, yeah. by the snide comments of uh, people that don't like those sports. So this is, this is really the dream playing out right now, right? Maybe a little F1, some horse racing. <laughs> yeah. We, we have a horse update on uh, Mr. Bob Baffert, who apologized, uh, but also was banned from the Belmont. Is that right? Yeah, it was. And you know what? I'm a cynic. And this is a great sport to be a cynic about because New York Racing Association bans him from the Belmont two days after his horse doesn't win the Preakness, meaning there's no chance for a triple no crown. No triple crown, yeah. Which, right. if you follow the Belmont Stakes, they watch the Preakness and have always watched the Preakness, except for last year when they ran them out of order. Um, with, you know, they have more at stake than, than anyone else in that race because the Belmont's popularity when you have a horse going for a triple crown versus when they... It's just a race. It's basically the Travers in Saratoga. It's a, it's a, it's an expensive race um, with no, none of this history at stake. You know, it, it's a huge decline. I mean, they go from like having a hundred thousand people there in a normal year to like, uh, you know, a fraction of that. So they announced that conveniently after uh, he's out. So call me a cynic. It does seem like the right move, but this moral high ground they're taking on uh you know caring about the horse's health uh above everything else i'm a little cynical about it's horse racing let's talk about it again in may 2022 <laughs> yeah no unless no the breeders to. is really interesting <laughs> well you tell us if, if that's no, the case we, don't. we can skip it we've got a packed show with uh sports that are all major in my opinion we're going to talk about how the first round of the NHL playoffs are shaping up, at least on the American side. We have not yet seen the Canadian teams in action. That'll happen soon enough. Patience uh, for everyone. Then we'll turn our attention to the NBA playoffs uh, and have a special guest join us to preview the basketball postseason, including the play-in tournament, uh, which starts tonight. Uh, and then finally, we'll have a deep dive into Dato with our rabbit hole of the week. And it's a baseball rabbit hole. Look at that. We're covering almost all of the major pro men's sports leagues. The NHL playoffs have begun, like we said, mostly, sorry about the delay, Canada, but round one series are going on in the other three divisions and the North will join the fun on Thursday. Finally, thank God we can finally finish these meaningless Vancouver versus Calgary games that we have to get out of the way before they start. Uh, so today we're going to take a look at how the American teams are doing, if any upsets are on the horizon. Uh, and our take for the week comes from the Puck Soup podcast where Greg Wyshynski and Ryan Lambert chat 
chatted about one of the closer matchups in the first round, the Washington Capitals and the Boston Bruins. But then this was before the series started. They seemed pretty sure what was going to happen in the series. Let's listen. I don't know, man. They're, the Capitals goaltending has been dog shit for like the last month and a half. Yeah. And, and, uh, and like they're just not. We've been saying it for a couple of years now. It's like, you know what? They keep having good regular seasons, but they're just not that good of a team. Like you just look at their whole roster and you go, I mean, I guess all those guys are like stuff is just really strange. I can't, I I can't endorse a team with all this swirl of weirdness around it. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, the Bruins are just like fucking rock stars again. The Bruins are like, oh, we just win every game four to one. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're just like went into the puck line every single night now. So yeah, obviously that was before the Caps won game one in overtime. Although the Bruins did return the favor in game two. So Jeff. Right now, this series is 1-1, and I kind of feel what they're saying about Washington, especially now that they're down to 39-year-old goalie Craig Anderson holding down the fort, yet also they're right in it. I don't know. What do you think? Is it realistic to think Anderson can kind of keep doing this and denying the Bruins, or do you think the Bruins are kind of uh, still clear favorites here? Before the goalie situation unfolded, I would have called this pretty much a toss-up. I know the Caps are old, but... This is a team with a window that's probably closing, and I think this is their. They probably realize this is their last best shot to um, to repeat as Cup winners, and I I don't think they're an easy out. I mean, like there's tons of playoff experience up and down the roster, and we've seen that's a legit thing when you, when we get to this part of the calendar. But with Anderson and that, um, who who played well, I he mean, played well. Like yeah, credit to him. He's 39, but that. You know, we've seen also how important goaltending is. And not like, you know, their other options were that great, but it is a strange situation what's going on with uh, Samsonov. I don't really understand it. I mean, the guy's in COVID protocol for the second time, and Kuznetsov is right with him. There's clearly an internal feud going on. And even, you know, Caps fans I talk to don't really quite understand the status of those guys. So it does seem like for now. I mean, Samsonov hasn't played since, I think, uh, the 1st of May. It it looks like Craig Anderson's going to be the guy, which uh, I would think would tilt the scales to Boston. But I think this whole little pod in the East is really competitive. I think, actually, I don't think there's that much difference between all four of those teams, counting uh, the Islanders and the Penguins. So... I'm not ready to make a prediction that Boston's definitely going to win because it, it would not shock me. I mean, look, both games went to overtime. So I think it's going to be a battle. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, even, you know, normally in other sports we've seen, you know, like if your quarterback or your top two quarterbacks go down and you have to bring in kind of a 39 year old uh, who perhaps has not been a uh, significant contributor in a number of years, you're screwed like in a playoff game, like if that happens. But hockey is so weird, especially when it comes to goalies who are simultaneously the most important position in a certain sense. Uh, You know, we've seen goalies that play really well be the big difference between a team making a deep run in the Stanley Cup and not. Yet at the same time, it just seems impossible to predict who will actually be that goalie and and play that well. And so in any other sport, you'd say the the equivalent of Craig Anderson is like a major liability. But here it's like, I don't know, you know, they they could win just as easily with him as maybe with the other guys, because not like their other options were amazing during the season either. Uh, Goaltending has been kind of an issue for them 
all year, like since, you know, they'd planned Henrik Lundqvist to come in and, and sort of be their, their guy, uh, or at least give it a shot. And then he had to miss the whole season with that heart condition. So it's, it, they've been kind of plugging holes back there all season long. This is no different. And, and Craig, Craig Anderson has been here before. I mean, it was not that long ago. He was the Ottawa's goalie when they went to the conference finals, he played 19 games in that, uh, that playoffs. I think it was, 2017 and they went they went seven with the penguins i think yeah they came within a game of going to the yeah i mean he was he was so he's been there there's plenty of reason to think he'd be just as good as those other two yeah um perhaps of more experience yeah, uh, and and the experience factor is interesting in hockey, where it does seem to be that there is an element to that. We've seen that also in the NBA, of course. Like playoff experience, our testing has kind of shown that that is a significant boost to a team. But I wouldn't be surprised if the same thing was true in hockey, just because like we've seen uh, certain guys, especially, uh, and maybe it's not so much goalies, but um, just having guys that have been there before uh, do, do seem to kind of pop up again and again. I think of Justin. Williams, who was like, went to the Stanley Cup final, it seemed like, you know, every few years uh, with the Kings, with the Hurricanes, so on and so forth. And just having people like that in your locker room does seem to be an advantage. Now, let's talk about the other matchups that seem to be pretty close or, or perhaps deceptively close. I'm thinking uh, in some ways about the Golden Knights and the Wild, which was like the Knights looked like one of the best, uh, one of the two best teams in the league going into the playoffs. Now, boom, they get shut out. They lose the opening game against the Wild and the Wild are a team that gave them trouble all regular season long. They actually beat them in the season series. So uh, are the Knights legitimately you know, in trouble, should they be worried? Or is that just like a one game hiccup for them uh, to start a series off? No, I don't. I, I think they're look, I, I would have said this before this series that this is a tough matchup. The, this wild team is really interesting. And, and it would not shock me at all if they won this series. I mean, if Cam Talbot keeps playing the way he did the other night, they certainly will win this series. But with uh, Kirill Kaprasov has really like, you know, we talked about him on our, our hockey chat. Kirill the, the Thrill. Kirill the Thrill, um, the uh, soon-to-be Calder uh, Trophy-winning 20, what is he, 25-year-old rookie? Uh, who's 23. He's 23. I know the, you've got an issue the, with these KHL veterans. The NHL rookie slash seasoned veteran <laughs> of the KHL. Uh, who gold medal winning for Russia and think how long ago the Winter Olympics were. Uh, rookie uh, star breakout for for the Wild and and just the whole team is is tough and it's not a good matchup. They we saw this in the regular season. The Knights always seem to struggle against the Wild. So you know I, I still believe in the Wild. I really like their team, especially the way Flurry has played this year. And even having Robin Lehner's the world's best playoff backup um, currently gives them so many options in net. And I'm not I'm not ready to rule them out, but yeah, I, I think I think the Wild could win this one. It would be a real shame, yeah, if the if the Knights got knocked out. I mean, someone had to finish second in that division, and the Knights uh, were number one until the Avalanche caught them. I think on the last day of the season, they they beat them out on a tiebreaker, and so for the Avalanche. You get a chance to face the Blues, who seem terribly overmatched, uh, that, and that series probably yeah. will be a sweep, barring something interesting happening. I think so. I mean, especially with David Perron, uh, they're, they're leading scorers out with COVID, which 
is like, come on, how? What timing? I'm, st I'm still surprised guys are still getting COVID, but put that aside. It is not going to help them. Um, and they already were kind of overmatched, I think, against the Avalanche, who, who have everyone back. We saw Nathan McKinnon back. Um, Grubauer also missed some time and has not been fully healthy. Um, they have had a lot of injuries, but it does seem like now all the pieces are in place for the Avalanche, the presidents. But then again, we've president's seen how well presidents' trophy teams have done in the past. So, but I do think getting it, yeah, this year was was key just because it meant the seeding and and being able to avoid the wild. Because I think you could argue that the Avalanche and the Knights are the two best teams in the league. But right now, already the Knights are sort of not. I, I don't think they're in horrible trouble, but definitely, um, you know, in a hole to start that series. But we'll have to see how that plays out um i do want to talk about just the big picture the battle of florida which was amazing and um tampa bay rallied absorbed all of florida's um punches and then ended up winning but that seems like that series is going to be uh just a real knockdown drag out fight the entire time uh and the bolts you know, the, any concerns that, oh, Nikita Kucherov coming back, maybe he's not, you know, he'll he'll take a little while to warm up. Nope. No, he looked, no he's uh, fine. <laughs> instantly just as good. He's uh, one of the best usual. players in the league. Instantly. Yeah, it turns out, yeah, uh, he, he, he is not rusty after missing the entire regular season. Uh, so they look strong. I mean, the Avalanche, again, dominated game one. So right now our model has the Avs with a 20% chance to win the Cup, followed by uh, Tampa Bay at 13%, then Carolina, who also showed up really well in game one of their series, uh, at 10%, and the Golden Knights at 9% despite trailing. Do you think that's about right? And and those are sort of the teams to, to keep an eye on as we go through this or any other teams that you would throw into the mix obviously i'm horribly disrespecting toronto they they're the next team in the ranking there um uh, should they especially should they emerge from the north yeah i think it's about right i i don't want to rule out the avalanche just because of what they have at least on paper but i i, I mean carolina to me is probably my pick right now to win the cup. oh to win the cup yeah i mean well at least to make the finals? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really <laughs> hard to tell. We're talking about making the finals. We're talking about it, winning it, the cup here, Jeff. It's really hard to tell because we don't really, we, we can't really predict unless we really map it out um, erroneously uh, who they're going to be playing and, and what would be the conference finals. Um, but I certainly like them in the central because I think Nashville, I, I think they're going to make quick work of Nashville. And then I think that Florida Tampa, I think, I think the model might be a little high on Tampa, to be honest, just because I think the Panthers are tough. And I think that is going to be, I think we're going to have a whole series of what we saw the other night. And I think Carolina might be just sitting back, you know, winning in five or, or something kind of easy on Nashville as we saw the other night, and then going to be playing a banged up exhausted team in the next round. So I like them to emerge from the central. And then I think the North, obviously Toronto, but why not Edmonton? I mean, we, we've talked about McDavid. We know what they're capable of if they can get some goaltending, you know, for Mike Smith, which normally wouldn't be a sentence that bodes well, but Hey, in a Craig good. Anderson world, Mike yeah. Smith, I mean, you've got all these guys that teams, I, I, I don't know how this compares historically, but it does seem like a lot of teams are kind of searching for their solutions, trying to kind of feel things out at, at goaltender 
early in the playoffs and maybe things are a little bit less settled than for more teams than than usual just because it does uh feel like there are a lot of teams that we don't necessarily know who their um who their answer is going to be and it, and it's going to kind of have to work itself out yeah i mean the panthers for one uh, right two, two Bobrovsky was not amazing i mean he gave no. up five goals and and, and they have game. you know they have they have the the kid um Hobie Baker winning Spencer Knight. And then they also have Chris. And Chris uh, Drager. Drager. Or however good. it's pronounced. <laughs> yeah, he's been <laughs> Apologies good. Apologies yeah. for his, yeah. his pronunciation of his last name. But um, yeah, so they have other options. It'd be interesting to see if they switch it up. Yeah. I mean, there's some, uh, cons- I mean, but Toronto, that's part of the problem. I mean, they have, you know, Campbell and, and Freddie Anderson, who's just back. And I, that is not a real strength of that team. So I, you know, I always look to goaltending when I'm, um, maybe this is my years of watching Marty Brodeur that I, I try to try to track who the hot goalie is. And, and often it is a guy who, who might not be a household name. You know, you look at the Blues a couple of years ago, you look at them the year Matt Murray won. Um, it, it, sometimes it's just the right guy in the right position. Maybe it's, so it could be Craig Anderson um, who gets hot and, and just kind of runs with it. But it's not a strength for a team like the Maple Leafs, whereas you look at the Knights, they obviously have great options. So, you know, that would favor someone like them. And Tampa Bay with Vasilevsky. Yeah, consistency um, there. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I guess we'll we'll keep watching are you, the Wait, playoffs. are you going to make your cup pick? I, I went with the Canes. Let's hear yours. I'm going to take Colorado. You know, I know that's a little bit of the chalky pick, which I frequently am criticized for. But I don't know. I mean, they seem like pretty transparently the best team i know that uh, winning the president's trophy is never uh viewed as a positive um but if you look at their stats especially the underlying metrics like i like to look at the the possession numbers whether it's things like corsi uh which is uh you know a share of shots that your team shot attempts that your team has uh relative to the opponents but also things like expected goals scoring chances high danger scoring chances colorado swept the um, swept the league in those numbers at five on five this year. They were first in, in all of those possession numbers. In addition to obviously having a great, um, goal differential, uh, and just talent wise, you can kind of eyeball their roster and, and see how good they are. So to me, I mean, it just seems like a, a real, um, dominating team that maybe we're not even giving enough credit to how, how great of a season they had. Cause I, I can't remember the last time a team just came in and just you know, swept across all of those uh, metrics uh, as the best team. So maybe that's enough to break the president's trophy curse. Who knows? Yeah, especially considering they had some adversity too. I mean, they had COVID issues. They played on a melting rink at Lake Tahoe at one point. Yeah, so (laughs) at full strength, they're an exciting team. And and I think that it helps that St. Louis seems like a pretty easy matchup for the first, first round. So yeah, that gives them a leg up. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we'll we'll keep watching. Right now, I think we can leave hockey in the rearview mirror. I think we'll be able to convince Sarah to talk about it more as the playoffs go on. Um, it's just a. It'll be the irresistible momentum of how exciting these games are. She won't be able to resist it. Uh, so so we'll wait for that for our next chance. But right now, we're gonna take a break and then we're gonna come back to talk about the NBA. The NBA's play-in tournament starts tonight with the Charlotte Hornets squaring off against the Indiana Pacers and the Washington Wizards looking to sweep past the battered Boston Celtics. So now is the time for bold sweeping takes on what's going to happen in the playoffs. And on ESPN's first take, Max Kellerman was very emphatic 
about not only which team is going to win it all, but also who is going to be their MVP. By the time the dust settles, James Harden will win finals MVP this season. And I understand why people get this wrong, right? You look at the Warriors, KD is Stephen A. the best player on that team, even better than Steph Curry. Won back-to-back championships on that team. He joined a 73-win team, right? And people look at this team, while they're kind of like the Warriors again. Here comes KD. Uh Uh-uh. This team is more like the Rockets, Stephen A., because people like you who said D'Antoni's system doesn't win championships were wrong. D'Antoni, who's really coaching this team, when Harden's on the floor. Harden and D'Antoni are running the Rockets' offense. D'Antoni's system resulted in a team that had no business competing with those Warriors, the 73-win Warriors that added KD, the team that you know LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love had no shot against, but they were hosting a Game 7. Without Chris Paul, missed 27 straight threes, still only lost by single digits. James Harden running D'Antoni's offense. Now give him KD and Kyrie and watch what happens. Don't have to. Already saw it this year. KD without with Kyrie, no Harden, they're a 500 team, give or take. Every permutation of players you want on that team, not that great until Harden's on the floor. With KD or with Kyrie or by himself, this man wins four games to every game he loses. He and D'Antoni are running that system with KD and Kyrie. Most important guy in that system is the point guard. That's James Harden. The answer is James Harden. We are very happy to be joined by our friend and colleague, Jared Dubin, to talk about whether James Harden is indeed the answer for the Nets and a bunch of other questions about the NBA playoffs. Jared, how are you this morning? I'm doing all right. How are you? Doing great. Excited to talk about some basketball with you. Uh, So let's just jump right in on what Max just said. What do you make of the Nets as the super team, the team that finally sort of proves that D'Antoni's offense can win a title? Do you think Kellerman has it right? Or are there factors that might trip this team up along the path to the finals? I'm going to cop out because I think he's both right and wrong. (laughs) Okay, that's a lot. Every every team in the NBA for years now has been running at least pieces of Mike D'Antoni's offense that he ran with Phoenix. Every team is using that spread pick and roll, those delayed drags and transition. That's all over the league. Every team is pushing the pace now. Teams play so much faster than they used to. Um, so the, the idea that this team is going to be the one that finally wins Mike D'Antoni's offense a title, no. Like the last like six or seven teams that have won the title all ran at least pieces of Mike D'Antoni's offense. Um, I think that this Nets offense, and I actually wrote about this for the site earlier in the year, it's not like the the late D'Antoni era Rockets offense with James Harden. He's It's going back to like the early D'Antoni era Rockets with James Harden where they're running way more pick and roll than isolation. And I think that that's where he's on with, if the Nets win the title, I do think Harden has a really good chance to be the guy that wins it for them just because of the way their offense is run. He's at the controls for absolutely everything. So I think that makes sense. If they if they are going to win, it's going to be on the strength of their offense. And he's the guy at the controls of it, so he's best suited to be the guy that sort of looks like he wins it for them and gets that, that finals MVP. I'm, I'm curious just because I'm away from the East Coast here in L.A. NBA land, which is obviously also exciting, but is anyone rooting for the Nets? <laughs> 
it's really bad timing to have this Knicks resurgence come at the time when we have this super team. And I'm just curious. I know we talked about this on previous episodes, but it does feel like I can't imagine there's a lot of people around the league like who want to see this team succeed. Or, or am I, I completely mean, I don't know wrong? About people around the league. I actually live like three blocks from Barclays, and you you know you see a decent amount of Nets gear outside. But even where I live, which again is like three blocks from Barclays, you see way more Knicks stuff. So there's there's probably a little bit of resentment within the league, but you know there is a fan base. Like I would tell my friends when the KD and Kyrie were you know considering choosing the Knicks or the Nets or any other team, I'd be like, you can't discount the possibility that they're going to the Nets, and they'd be like, what? Why? Why would you ever go to the Nets? And I'd be like. You know, they have a real organization that... Yeah, they, they're a real organization. They're not owned by Jim Dolan? Yeah, yeah, an actual basketball team, and it seems like they know what they're doing, and that's, you know, exactly what happened. Obviously, the Knicks have turned things around a bit since then, but, you know, there, there are reasons that those guys chose the Nets, and they've brought other guys along with them, and they're really good. Well, one of my questions about the Nets also, especially if they start to kind of pick up steam in the playoffs, and this is something we've talked about, the value of having almost like a villain, you know, in the in the narrative arc of the season. And it seems like this particular NBA season, may, uh, you know, probably because of COVID and just the, the way it was such a compressed schedule starting on the heels of last year's really weird season, but it seems to have kind of lacked other options for that narrative arc that I'm kind of hopeful that in the playoffs, maybe it's what it takes is the Nets starting to kind of gel as that super team. And then you can kind of, yeah, we, we've said in the past that sports, they thrive with heroes, but they also thrive with villains and they thrive with that team that everybody wants to see lose, but they're too good to, to do that. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's totally right. Um, and it's interesting too, in the West, because they're, each one of the sort of top teams has, has, with the Clippers maybe being the exception, in some ways I actually think the, the Clippers kind of have the most pressure on them because of what happened last year. But if you look at the Jazz with Mitchell missing all this time, the Suns being relatively, well, not re- even relatively, com- com- almost completely inexperienced when it comes to you know the playoffs, everything going on with the Lakers and the adversity they faced, normally they would pencil in nicely as a villain but having to go through and we'll talk about the playing game in a second um having to go through this route to to be the sort of favorite in the west um there's and and then denver you know missing murray i mean there, there are a lot of sort of you know flaws to the western teams and we don't have that dominant sort of superpower um in the west which is i think unusual at least compared to the last 10 years or so yeah, I definitely agree. I also think, you know, the reason no real villain emerged throughout the regular season is, like, you look at, like, the top 10, 15 guys in the NBA, how many of them missed, like, extended stretches of time throughout the regular season? You know, Jokic is the only one that played every game. LeBron was out. Anthony Davis was out. KD, Kyrie, and Harden were out. Giannis missed a few games here and there. Embiid missed time. Simmons missed time. Like, all of the guys on the best teams, you know, you just mentioned Mitchell missed time, Mike Conley missed time. The Suns didn't really have anyone miss an extended period, but their their strength, and I wrote about this earlier in the season too, is they've just had their top seven, eight guys basically the entire year, and that's why they've been really good. Like, they've been the same version of the team that they'll be in the playoffs for most of the regular season. You know, they had guys miss a couple games here and there, but not an extended stretch. And, like, what are you going to do? 
hate Devin Booker and Chris Paul, who have, like, this is the first time they're playing together, and Booker's never been to the playoffs, and DeAndre Ayton became, like, a significantly better defender over the first two years of his career, and is, like, a good story, and Mikael Bridges is unbelievable. Like, that's not a team you're going to hate. Um, and it's, like, the opportunities for a team to emerge as a villain weren't there because guys weren't on the court enough. Like, if KD... Kyrie and Harden had played 45 games together instead of seven, maybe people would be like, oh, I can't stand the Nets. I hate the Nets. But that just didn't happen. Yeah. And this Lakers-Warriors matchup is kind of the first must-see NBA matchup in in a while, I think, um, and, and should be great. Despite LeBron sort of questioning why they should even have the play-in tournament at all, this is why we have it. We want to see, you know, it's not good for him because his his team might not uh, make it out, but it's great for the rest of us to be able to see. So if that's the best play-in matchup, what's sort of the second best? What's the other one that you guys are watching, whether it's in the first stage or something that might be shaping up in in sort of the the back half, the game seven, if you will, of the the play-in tournament? I think both potential Game 7s are the most interesting just because one of those teams going home, you know? Yeah, yeah and I think sure. I think it's going to be the <laughs> – this is a kind of a cheap answer, but it's going to be the loser of this Lakers-Warriors game, and whether that's Memphis or Spurs, it doesn't matter. But I think you'll have the same interest. You know, if it's – I mean, if it's the Lakers, obviously that's fascinating. Um, I don't personally see a future where the Lakers lose – two games but um we might have to check in on adam silver if that does end up happening (laughs) but um seeing the warriors playing for a a spot in the playoffs i think will be almost well probably not the same as the lakers but it'll be just as much of a draw but just the way curry's been playing and the interest that he brings um with this team that is obviously not the warriors teams we've seen in the past but still this steph curry if not a better version of Steph Curry we've seen in the past. I would say for the NBA league office, worst case scenario is like the Spurs beat the Grizzlies and the Lakers, and then the Pacers beat the Hornets and the Wizards. Like the Celtics are in, but there's no Jalen Brown and Russell Beeler sitting at home. Um, And then, you know, you got the Pacers with no Miles Turner, potentially no Malcolm Brogdon, and like LaMelo is sitting at home and... The Wizards are sitting at home, and LeBron is sitting at home. That's that would not be good, I, I don't think, from the the eyes of the league office. I don't really see that necessarily happening. I would feel bad for the Grizzlies if they lose in the play-in for the second year in a row. By the way, it's interesting. It's interesting because if they hadn't have tinkered with anything, they would still have Suns, Lakers, Warriors, Jazz, and in a league where we see very few upsets, or you know, certainly top seed upsets in the first round, those have to be what two of the more dangerous seven and eight teams ever. I mean, certainly with the Lakers as a seven seed, the most dangerous seven seed ever. But I mean, I'm curious, Jared, what do you think? Would do you, let's let's say the Warriors do make it in face of jazz. Would do you give them a chance in that series? I mean, obviously the jazz um, are a little bit on. I mean, they, they could be a team that just, is built for the regular season. I'm curious how you think their success will translate to the playoffs. So first of all, I'm insulted because clearly the most dangerous number eight seed ever is the 1998-99 New York Knicks. 
Shout out Latrell Sprewell, Alan Houston, Marcus Camby. Oh, I was I was doing this century, this century, but um, sure. I mean, they sure. went to the finals. Come on. Yeah, no, I remember it well, but you know, I'm I'm thinking in a in a more recent lens of the NBA. In my adult life, that's basically like all I have to hang on to as a Nick fan until this year. So we're we're not gonna forget about that team. But yeah, I mean, look until this year, the Warriors are like. I'm not going to count out Steph and Draymond, but I don't like I don't know what kind of answers they have for the Jazz offense just because there are so many different ways they can attack. Like how many fires can Draymond put out all at once by himself is basically what that series comes down to on that side. You know, that said, the Warriors are about as well set up to play against the Jazz's drop coverage, pick and roll defense as any team not named the Blazers. Um, you know, we've, we've seen guys like Dame Lillard and Chris Paul and Paul George beat that kind of defense with, you know, a pretty high level of consistency. And obviously, Steph has the ability to do that, too. But Rudy Gobert this year, I think, has been as good as he's ever been at coming out to the perimeter and contain on the perimeter or switch on the perimeter. And obviously, having a play against Steph would be a pretty big test of that. So I wouldn't say they have no chance, but I wouldn't say, you know, it, it's more likely that they don't advance out of the play and that they win two rounds. Fair enough. That makes sense. So, so let's, I mean, we have Jared on, we, we got to ask him about the Knicks. What, what, <laughs> what, what are you thinking with the Hawks and beyond? Is there a beyond? Uh, I'm thinking that it's house money. That's what all the Knicks fans I know have been saying. I think they're just saying that. To they're themselves. just saying. No, I mean, I could not have possibly imagined the season going like this. Like I've, I'm more impressed with Julius Randle this season than I've been with any Nick player since, since like I can remember. <laughs> like, you know, I I was born in '87, so I saw you know the the early '90s Knicks were you know my 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 early childhood, and then the late '90s Knicks were like my early teenage years, and since then they've just been a disaster. Obviously, so it it was hard to be impressed with that many Knicks over the last 20 years or so, and he's just been obviously unbelievable. You know, I think they match up well with the Hawks. I think the Hawks probably have more talent. What do you do with your starting lineup then if you're starting DeAndre Hunter? Like Bogdan going to the bench or is Herter going to the bench or is, you know, Tony Snell or Solomon Hill or whoever the heck they're starting these days going to the bench. Um, you know, the, the Knicks defense, I wouldn't say, is an antidote for Trey Young. You know, they, they won that game late in the season, but Trey got hurt. And he actually, I think he had 14 assists in the third quarter when he went out and he was kind of like toying with their rotations a little bit. So I think that, you know, there's a potential advantage to be exploited there. And I mean, if the Knicks are going to continue starting Alfred Payton and getting outscored by seven, eight points in the first six minutes of every game, like you're just putting yourself behind the eight ball. And that's really what's been happening down the stretch of the season. Tibbs does not seem like he wants to change his rotation all that much, but you know, if you want to start Alec Burks instead, or if you want to start, Frank Nilakina instead, so at least you have some better defense out there for those first few minutes. He doesn't seem to want to start Rose or quickly and likes bringing them off the bench together. But you know, I think it's it's a talent, it's a, a question of you know does the Hawks' greater level of offensive talent um, outweigh just the way the Knicks work so hard on defense? Um, because that's, that's really what got them where they are. Obviously, over the second half of the year, they played much better offensively, and they've been shooting the lights out like crazy, which is absurd considering coming into the year the number one biggest 
thing people said about them was like, how is this team going to hit like a single three all year? And they wound up, I think, third or fourth in the league in three-point shooting percentage. They don't take enough of them, but they shoot them really well, at least for most of the year. Um, like, I think it's the most interesting tactical matchup of the first round that we that, that we at least know of so far, just because of the ways that Tibbs' defense and the, and that offense led by, obviously, Trey Young and then Clint Capello rolling down the middle of the lane, just the way all that stuff interacts, and then how many different bodies can the Hawks throw at Julius Randle and can anybody figure him out when nobody really did throughout the regular season. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one. And uh, just on, on the, the emotion level of you and all the other Knicks fans out there as we kind of make our way through this uh, playoff, we'll have to see. Jeff, of, of course, you are a nominal Knicks fan. Just so. just keep saying house money. You know, think about the <laughs> future. <laughs> it's too bad there's not like a real marquee free agent coming up because I think that's probably where the conversation leads once the Knicks season ends of, who can we add to this? Um, maybe it's maybe it's Lonzo or I don't know. We have to. We'll we'll start. I'm sure we'll devote that some time because that always comes right at the end of this. Yeah. As long no as break. as long as Tony doesn't jinx it again, I think it'll be okay. Tony has done nothing but jinx every Knicks free agent uh, season, <laughs> off season, whatever you call it. <laughs> He's uh, the our, reason. Uh, Tony Chow in the control room. Shout out to him as our uh, most diehard Knicks fan that uh, that I know at least. Uh, but yeah, well, uh, that's that's something to put uh, you know later into the future. We'll 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 know what the Knicks' ultimate fate is. But for now. They have potential, like you said, Jared, to potentially beat the Hawks, and then we'll see where that goes from there. And first and foremost, we got to watch out what happens in the play-in tournament. So I think we're going to leave things there, keep an eye on that tonight. But thank you, Jared, for coming on. Thanks for talking to us about all things basketball. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jared. And uh, we're going to take a break and then be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories. Most don't, frankly. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. And this time, I'm going to call my own number because Sarah's not here. Actually, who am I kidding? I usually do the rabbit hole anyway. Yeah, it's I, I live you. for this segment I'm, of the show. We all, anyone who listens every week knows I'm the weak link when it comes to rabbit holes. So... Well, Jeff, I mean that this. Who is else just, is it going to be? It would have it would have shocked the world if I produced if you the rabbit had hole produced it. Yes, but we we want these rabbit holes from you. Uh, so th- this will be a little bit uh, collaborative. You know, I'll uh, we can have an engaging conversation around this one uh, because I know that this is a topic that um, you edited a story that I wrote about it, but it's about oh, yeah. the San Francisco Giants dynasty of the 2010s and how it was super weird. So as a and make no mistake. It was a dynasty. It was a dynasty. It, they didn't win two the, in a row, but it was a three, dynasty. Yeah, three and five years counts. Uh, and yeah, uh, they won those three in even-numbered years, which was weird. Also, the years that they didn't win, they didn't make the playoffs at all. One of those years, they didn't even finish 500. Uh, and really, the even-year magic kind of died out in 2016 uh, when they lost the division series to the eventual champion Cubs. And so... You know, you might think, okay, well, they had this kind of unconventional dynastic run, but it's run its course. They're going to rebuild after this, and maybe the next version of the Giants that's competitive will be more competitive, uh, will be more conventional. 
But no, that's not true. They have rebuilt just as weird as they ran their dynasty in the first place. Uh, right now, they are, well, as of yesterday, they were in first place in the uh, NL West. They were a half game ahead of the San Diego Padres. So, uh, yeah, nobody really saw this coming, especially since, you know, last year they weren't supposed to be competitive at all. Bruce Bochy retired as manager. Madison Bumgarner went to the Diamondbacks. And yet this team was right in the thick of the playoff race until the very end of the season, only really when they had kind of a, a rough stretch at the worst possible time did they fall out of it. They lost the race for the eighth seed in the National League because that was a thing last year uh, on a tiebreaker against the Brewers. So they weren't supposed to be in that uh, place. And the big question going into this year was, is was that a fluke? Like, wh- what do we make of the fact that Mike Yastrzemski suddenly was an MVP? Do they have the pitching? You know, all of these questions about this team and whether, you know, they were actually just going to regress to the mean. And as it turns out, like I said, they have not done that yet. And they've they've really the key to their success this year has been pitching, but specifically starting pitching, where according to wins above replacement, they have the best rotation of any team in baseball so far. Uh, there was a lot of talk. Oh, the Dodgers, they added Trevor Bauer. You know, the Mets obviously have an amazing rotation most years. The Yankees with Garrett Cole. The Brewers uh, have been a rotation on the rise recently. The Phillies with Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola. Nope. The Giants, who are led by this immortal starting rotation that I'm sure all of us thought was going to be the best in baseball going into the season. Let's uh, let's name off the Giants starters. So you've got Kevin Gaussman, you've got Anthony DeSclafani, you've got <laughs> Logan Webb, you've got Alex Wood, you've got Aaron Sanchez, and you've got a, uh, I believe, 35-year-old Johnny Cueto. Johnny. I don't know about you, Jeff. I totally saw this on paper well, going into the season okay. as being the best rotation in baseball, right? Gaussman and Di Sclafani, <laughs> I did not see. And I don't think anyone did. Um, Alex Wood has been a pitcher who's looked, has looked dominant in the past. He's had you his know, moments. Yeah, in LA. Um, his problem mainly was just staying healthy. And obviously, let's let's see if he holds up because he, he has had, you know, injury problems in the past it is a good place to pitch and we've seen you know whether it's lincecum back in the day or Bumgarner, we've seen pitchers thrive there but don't forget about matt kane matt kane um it's it's a obviously a comfortable place to pitch but the this is like an island of misfits um that's going on right now and, and it's working yeah and we, we haven't seen something like this uh granted we are only about a month and a half into the season, so uh, this could definitely change. But if it does hold, we've never seen a team, at least in the expansion era, rise from number 23 in rotation value, which is where they were last year, to number one overall in rotation value from one season to the next. The biggest improvement was by the 1980 Phillies, who went from 21st in 1979 to first the year, and they they actually won the World Series that year. But we, we haven't even seen that many teams rise from outside the top 20 to finish even second in in rotation value so it's been a pretty impressive turnaround and the other thing about this rotation is that 
it's mostly built from just guys that they got from, you know, almost the scrap heap or at least guys that they got from outside the organization. 85% of the value by San Francisco pitchers this year have come from players who were not homegrown, which is the second highest rate of any team in baseball behind only the Texas Rangers. And the Rangers... You know, they kind of always seem to have pitching problems and, and have kind of gone through this uh, this year. But for San Francisco, it is working out. And the other thing that I find interesting about this resurgent Giants team is that they're super old. Normally, we think of <laughs> with a team. Yeah, no offense to us old guys, Jeff. But uh, when we think about a team kind of rebuilding after they have a dynasty and they've kind of gone through their little rebuild period, we think of it as bringing in kind of younger talent and they're reloading that way and kind of building from within. But the Giants are the oldest team in baseball right now. They're actually older on average. Their roster is older this year than it was the last time that they won the World Series. And and a lot of it has been guys that were on that team, much older versions of that, having unexpectedly great seasons. And they just have these ancient guys and they got much older between last year and this year, which is also sort of unprecedented. So uh, their average age was second highest in baseball last year behind only the Twins. And then it increased by 1.8 years between 2020 and 2021. So if you go back in all of baseball history and look at teams who had an average age of 31 or higher, there have been only uh, seven teams that also increased their average age by 1.8 or more uh, years between seasons in that group. Uh, and a lot of the teams at the top of that list, like, for instance, the 1944 for Washington Senators increased their average age by 3.5 years between 1943 and 44. Well, it was also wartime, you know, and the same went for the 1945 Phillies, the 1945 White Sox, the 1943 Dodgers. A lot of the teams in there were just trying to find guys that could play that weren't, you know, serving uh, in, in the military uh, at that time. So really, in a modern sense, the only team that we could compare this Giants team to is the 1987 Yankees, who also increased their average age by 1.8 years and became very old. And that was at the end of that Yankee period. The the 80s uh, were famously, up until the 2010s, uh, one of the rare decades in which the Yankees did not win a World Series. Um, uh, and it was kind of the end of that era of Steinbrenner really meddling and trying to bring in free agents uh, and and uh, overhaul his team. So you kind of understand why that team got a lot older. Uh, but again, the Giants have gotten older you know, based on having a lot of veterans and then also just going out and getting a lot of guys who maybe were not thought of super highly. Uh, and as a result, 82% of the value on this team has been generated by players age 30 or older, which is easily the highest in baseball this year. Nobody else is above 62%. And it's also on pace to be the fifth highest in baseball history in terms of the share of value created by players in their 30s or older. So I just think it's it's fascinating to see that this, uh, this team that when they were a dynasty, they did things in a very unconventional way. And then now their uh, their rebuild from that has also been extremely unconventional. We'll see if it holds up, but uh, it, it's been great to see, like you said, Jeff, um, uh, the the some of the familiar names from that uh, time playing well again, and then also some of the newer names also um, playing well. But they're not new to baseball because they're super old. Yeah, well, I mean, even the guys who are new to baseball, you look at Yastrzemski is thirty. And the guy's right, only yeah, been in the league. It's only, his third year. it's only his third year in the league. 
and he's 30. So even their young players are old. I mean, Posey's an interesting story that he took the year off and he just looks like a revelation. I mean, he looks like a different player. His power is back. I mean, this guy's got eight home runs. And then they're getting these performance, you know, from, I mean, I didn't realize that about their age, but you look at the lineup and like Wilmer Flores is the young guy. Yeah, right, um, at 29. Wilmer Flores has been around for a while. Um, but then they get like Darren Ruff is contributing a lot. I mean, that guy is like career utility player and he's, you know, he's kind of doing it. They're doing it the old fashioned money ball way. He just gets on base, you know, it doesn't hit for high average or anything, but he, he gets a lot of walks and, you know, it, it's kind of old school. It's fun to watch. Yeah. So well, old school again, in a new school sense of money ball, but. You old know. school in the sense that they are old players. So yes. that, that's where yes. that comes from. Now, again, we don't know if it will last right now. Our model, which is notoriously slow to sort of adapt to trends that happen early in a season, it does not necessarily believe in the Giants uh, that they are serious championship contenders. It only gives them a 29% chance of making the playoffs. And again, it takes a long time to evolve. Just ask Sarah's twins, who I did not think would I would mention on this. Uh, episode but at 13 and 26 and looking absolutely horrible just in every possible way they still rank 16th in baseball in elo rating so this takes a long time to update uh, and who knows maybe we'll kind of look back at this episode and the giants will have fallen apart and the twins will have gotten hot but uh for now it's been uh great to see the giants sort of emerge especially in that division where they were they were not supposed to be leading it. I mean, it was all about the Dodgers and the Padres and that whole rivalry, and they've sort of inserted themselves into it. Yeah, and I I mean the Dodgers are certainly banged up, and that is you know they're so banged losing. up they're signing Albert Pujols. Yeah, I mean Sager now with a broken hand, and and Bellinger's been hurt all season. In the end, we're in August. I feel like the Dodgers are still going to be there on top it's certainly an opportunity now for a team in the west to to rack up some wins which you know they all add up yeah they all count all right well that's gonna do it for the rabbit hole and that'll do it for this week's show we will be back in your feed next tuesday if you did like what you heard please subscribe and if you're already subscribed please rate and review us on apple podcast it helps new people discover the show and uh, if you leave a particularly interesting review we might shout you out on a future episode of the show uh, you can also email us at podcast at 538.com let us know what you think our podcast producer, as always, is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room rooting for the New York Knicks as we speak. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. I think he's a Nets fan. We, 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 we'll, we won't dive into that. Uh, for Jeff and Jared, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.